Welcome to the Western Vowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Women Talking, Power, Dominance, and Agency in the Age of Me Too and on the Path. The talk was given by Elise Arrow, EE, on June 17, 2023, via Zoom. EE has been committed to a life of engaging spiritual principles and service through theater, support for the dying, and bringing enjoyment to others as a chocolatier. In this talk, she summarizes the plot of the movie Women Talking, which was nominated for Best Picture in 2023 and won an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. E.E. considers that part of the work of spiritual practitioners involves relating with issues of power and dominance in our world and on the path. Many different facets of gender dynamics, rooted in the ways we are raised and socialized that have influenced our view of ourselves and our behaviors, are discussed by those in attendance. We can observe ourselves, have conversations about questionable or abusive circumstances we encounter, listen to other voices, and stand in what is true for us in developing the intention to serve a higher purpose. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Elise Arrow. I do want to tell you a little bit about the movie and why it was so impactful for me. It's a story that's based on a religious colony, very primitive in a certain way. It started out where this group of women of all ages met in a barn and they needed to talk about what was going on. When the movie opens, this voiceover was saying, we didn't know how to read or write, but the one thing we did know how to do was to vote. And what they did was they drew pictures of their situation. And their situation was this, with the men in their community, they were being abused, but they didn't talk about that. So the movie is about how they shared their experience and they talked about what it was like. The older women were saying that they had been in relationships with men and all they did was they made babies. They just had 13 kids and that was it. And then when I was done, all I did was wash clothes and cook meals. As the story progresses, what you see is that the men really relied on the women, but the women had no voice. They had no voice. They had no way to talk to one another. The men were off doing something else. So the women found this opportunity in the barn to go and talk to one another. And they found out when they were talking to one another that the children, especially the girls, were being abused, sexually abused by the men their brothers, their fathers, their uncles in this community. And the women were saying, we've got to stop this. We have to do something about this. But they didn't know what to do. So they drew pictures. They drew pictures of we either stay. There were pictures of them, just two people staying and doing the same thing, just not saying anything, but doing the same thing. Or else we fight. And there's a picture of two people there's a man and a woman with a knife, and we fight this or we leave. And there was a picture of them leaving, and they had covered wagons. One woman walked for a day and a half to a doctor to get medication for her daughter because her daughter had been raped and was sick. She was sick from this. This is a very contemporary story in a way, but they're living this life cloistered. Their elders in their community were telling them that if they spoke out or if they disagreed, they would not be able to get into the gates of heaven. So their religion, their faith was being challenged by what their elders were telling them. The whole movie was about how they got together and they were talking about what was happening to them. One of the shocking things about it was when the stories came out about the abuse. Nobody was shocked and horrified. 
because it was happening to all of them. They all knew what was going on, but nobody said anything. So finally, it got to the point where they said, okay, we have these three choices and we're going to vote. And all ages got to vote. There were grandmothers, there were young kids, but everybody got a vote and they got to put their mark underneath the picture. We either stay and keep things as they are, we fight or we leave. I think it's very important to remember this idea of the elders telling them that if they complained in any way, they would not get into the gates of heaven. If they disagreed with the men in any way. Oh, and then they invited a young man to come and be the scribe for their meetings because they had no way of recording anything. They didn't know how to read or write, but he did. And he had come from the community and then he had gone off to school and then he had come back. He was a teacher, I think, in their school, but he had a broader perspective and a broader education. And he was not one of the men that was hurting these women. So they trusted him. Okay, what is the relevance of this film and why did it have so much energy in it when we started having a conversation about how relevant this is today? Which is why I wanted to talk about it and I wanted to bring it to people and to see where these conversations go. Because this is not just a movie on a screen. Oh, by the way, it did win something. It won something for the writing, I think, at the Oscars this year. There's stuff that's going on in our world right now. There's stuff that's going on in our communities. And even though this is a public talk, I recognize everyone here is from some kind of a spiritual community. And the point of this film brought up for myself and for other people that I've talked to, many questions about authority spiritual authority especially, and the culture that we live in. Recently, what's been going on in the political, cultural scene, there's a very famous trial that just happened about a woman who brought a charge against a very famous man for sexual abuse. And she put it out there in the public. It was a very publicly exposed trial. and. She won her case because she said, this thing happened, and it happened 30 years ago. This thing happened to me. She actually emphasized that this thing that he did to me was rape. She won her case on sexual abuse and defamation because he refused to acknowledge this ever happened. He said she was a liar. He didn't know her, all this stuff. And the jury disagreed with him and awarded her the outcome of this trial. So when women talk, when they speak what their story is, and they actually report it to another woman, for example, that woman becomes a witness. This is in the courts in America. So some of you are from other places. I don't know how it works in your country. But in this country, this is recognized. So women were coming forward in her case. The thing that was so interesting to me was that when she told her story to her friend, her friend said, well, didn't you realize you were being raped? And she said, no, no, no. I was kind of flirting, you know, and this, then this thing happened. And she said, but he sexually abused you. She said, yes, well, that's true. So this is one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and discovering as I'm talking to people and also listening to other women speaking their stories to other women and then also publicly is that we are learning what happened to other people in the age of Me Too. What we're finding out is that these things are going on and we recognize them. And so there's not this shock and surprise. There's this, oh yeah, that happened to me too. And so that is an experience that has come out through, particularly in a sexual way, male dominance over women. But there can be other sorts of things that come out in stories where people recognize that other people are having similar experiences. The power of the story, the power of speaking to one another is phenomenal. I was looking at a news report this morning of a woman who was speaking about something entirely different. And she said, when I told my abortion story, she was speaking to a group of journalists, I was surprised at how many women called me 
and texted me and emailed me and told me, thank you so much for telling me, because now I am able to speak this truth of my story to other people. So what I've been seeing is that this is not just a personal thing. It happens personally to us, but it's a cultural thing. And it comes out with the arising of things like the Me Too movement of people saying, yes, I recognize this. I recognize this because it happened to me too. And this is one of the points she was making this morning. She says, it set many women's lives on a certain trajectory. If this thing had not happened, lives could be totally different. But because this thing happened, relationships had been changed. People's credibility has been ruined. This woman won a defamation lawsuit, which means this guy said these horrible things about her, which was basically illegal. It's a libelous situation. And she won that. Her jury of her peers said, you're right. This should never have happened. And she got a lot of money for it. But that's because the courts can't do anything else. You can't give a person their life back. But these stories are life-changing. And that's what this movie was about. Should we say how the movie ended? They voted. And then what they voted to do was to actually leave. So at the end of the movie, you see them in their covered wagons leaving with their children, most of their children. If the boys were a certain age, they decided that they couldn't take the boys because they couldn't be trusted. Anyway, so you can see I have a lot of energy for this topic. I think it's a very important conversation to have. I'd really love to hear from some of you. I've already heard from some of you. Can anybody relate? Comments I always had is the male, female dichotomy because the males cannot understand what you are going through. Hi. I just wanted to share that I became aware of this movie through the podcast. They actually had the author of this book Mm. um, for this movie, and she gave an overview that was just very insightful and got me very interested. And one of the ways it impacted me that I didn't expect was that I found that in each of these women, I found a part of myself. Every voice that spoke was a part of me, even the ones that argue, the one that wanted to fight. I found it fascinating that that community that existed also exists with inside me. And it's had me thinking about it ever since and some of the experiences I've had. Thanks. Do you find that speaking your experience to another person is of use to you? Oh, absolutely. And I'm probably someone who's gone through life that shares too much, too much too fast. I probably need to work on it. But yes, I am very vocal and I have spoken up many times, tried to engage men. I have a 23-year-old son and we've engaged on the topic. I told him, this is a movie that you need to see, your friends need to see. This is really something that needs to be out there. I have a 21-year-old daughter. We've talked about it a lot. This has happened to someone we all know. They just haven't said it out loud. Yes. I think one of the things that's hard about a meeting like this is actually the saying out loud part. And that's also where the strength of this practice originates. The actual saying out loud to another person especially if another person can relate through their experience. Men have a perspective on this. And I think that their perspective is very, very important for us as women, for me, to hear. My 23-year-old son, what he expressed to me was confusion over and over. He doesn't really understand what the women he's interacting with are saying or want. I found that very interesting. I don't think I have a daughter that has a loud voice and I can see the cultural, the family interactions that have promoted that. So it has to start within though. You have to admit to yourself, you're worth it, right? Like I'm worth it. It takes courage to speak up, especially when you're talking to your kids. What do you say? I'll let you know. It's a conversation we're still having. (laughs) Well, I've been told that I am the only adult they talk to about this because a lot of people don't, but it became necessary in my life. 
It's not a lesson I sought to learn. <laughs> I think, oh, it takes courage. It didn't feel like it was even a choice for me. It's just suddenly something that once the veil was lifted, I could see it. I could see it everywhere. Yeah. Thank you so much. I so appreciate you sharing that. And I wish you all the best with your kids. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Two points that come up for me. One is that in the movie, what made the decision that they would leave was when one woman said that if her daughter was abused again, her four-year-old daughter was abused again, she would turn into a murderer. Mm -hmm. And that that was the pivot. Their faith was overall nonviolence. And so if stain was going to turn them to violence, then they should leave. And I found that very insightful and useful because for the most part of the movie, it was how were they ever going to decide? Yeah. The other thing I want to say is when it comes to what do women want, it's not complicated. It's to be treated with respect, mm -hmm. like consensual sex. It's not a tricky thing. And I've noticed a lot of conversations are about the women's end of things, which is really great. It absolutely needs to be talked about. I, there was a program on the radio not so long ago that talked about all these unreported concussions and how sports teams and hockey players and whatnot, concussion is a big deal. But there's this massive amount of concussions that women suffer from being abused by their partners. So there's all sorts of support and whatnot for women and women are talking and it's very important and vital. But until men start talking too about why are they abusers? What makes them feel like they have to dominate someone who's physically weaker than them? Until men start talking to and with men, then I don't know how the situation could ever change. The men who really could use talking are not going to talk, are not going to do that. They might do it if judges start mandating men as part of their punishment for abusing a wife. I'm not disagreeing that it shouldn't happen, but it's got to happen some other way, in my opinion. Men are not going to talk to one another. They hate talking about feelings and stuff. And men are crippled because to do this is to deny your whole feminine half. You're not a whole being until you can respect yourself. It's not going to go anywhere. I don't accept that. Well, men are not going to talk to each other, so we're kind of stuck here where it is. There has to be a way. Men aren't going to talk to women about why they feel driven to abuse and to dominate. They're not, but they might talk to other men if a man could approach and talk to them from a position of he must be suffering too. Abusers must be suffering too. And I think the reason that they abuse is because they just can't handle the pain that they're feeling. And so they give their pain to someone else. Some men at some point are going to say, we have to help our brothers. It's not okay that they are abusing women. We have to get them to speak about their pain. We have to see what kind of support they can have. And I know it's not going to be easy, but I, I am not going to believe that it's just not going to happen because it's not something men do or don't do. I think a compassionate other is needed. I don't believe it needs to be any gender. Men who are abusing met with compassion and true care and genuine love, seeing them for the wounded boys that might be acting out this way. 
I think that's our best chance of healing. And, and I've read some research, can't remember her name at the moment, but she runs a domestic violence reform program for men. And she said she's been doing it for decades and it's men talking to each other in this group. And then she tries to lead them. And she said she's had maybe three men that actually changed their behavior and they were court ordered to go there. They were mandated. So there is a path forward. And I choose to believe that compassionate other is the way to healing. I think the movie Women Talking has really been a kick in the somewhere to get men looking at that. It was very impactful to see that. I was devastated. But the thing is, is that men haven't been talking to one another and look at all the change that women have managed despite, by and large, total resistance from men and from a lot of women. Women need to talk to one another. Mm -hmm. Men need to talk to one another and women need to talk to one another. But there's a lot of women who are uh, not on board with this conversation. I'd like to say that I've seen men in 12-step groups, primarily adult children of alcoholics and dysfunction. I see men who are talking about this openly. They've got past their shame. They are able to speak. And it's one of the most rewarding, fulfilling experiences to see. It takes such tremendous courage. But they've done it because of great suffering. They have felt great suffering and been motivated to find some way. May it come to pass that men feel it sooner and sooner that it doesn't get passed on to our children continually. Compassionate other, I just mean another human who can hear someone without shaming or blaming them. Well, we can talk about this in a cultural context, or we can talk about it from our own perspective on personal practice. We see what's going on in society as reflected in the movie. But to me, the most relevant thing is how does that inform my behavior, my practice on the path? One thing that I would throw out there, I'm not saying that this is the whole story by any means, but it seems like a lot of men, I think this has been alluded to, have poor self-images, at least men who are abusive and can't show weakness. And they've been socialized in a certain way as well. Just can't imagine acknowledging that and opening up to the feelings that are under that. That's just part of the cultural dynamics that have been at play. And Men have historically, of course, been in roles of authority, but really it's kind of bizarre because I think so often men feel disempowered and need to power grab as a way of compensation in some way. All right. So whether that's a big part of it, it seems that way to me, but the relevant thing is, does the way that we're socialized inform the way that I approach the path? The way that I treat women, mm. the way that I have treated my wife, mm -hmm. do I make an assumption of privilege because I'm a white male that I never even really thought about? It just never really even occurred to me. It's so tacit. And commensurately, as women, I wonder how you practice with the way that you're socialized. There's a lot to say about that, probably, but. I'll leave that to the women if you wish to speak about any of that. For me, the one big question is, because I'm working with children, why are men behaving as they behave towards women? And for me, it starts really in the preschool, in families, yeah, And you can do like court orders for men that they talk to each other. But if you not go to the root and start in the beginning, in the families, in the childcare institutions, everywhere in the kindergarten, in the schools, that men or boys do not need to hide their feelings, then they learn how to deal with conflicts, deal with their aggression. Everything what we do in the system, 
when they are grown-ups or when they are teenager, it's too late in a way. We can put band-aided on it and bandages and it's healing a little bit, but the wound is so deep because the wound is, you experience this when you're a baby or when you're two years old and this wound, I can't heal it anymore. I can help you to cope with it. How are we treating our children? What kind of importance has arts and sports and learning expressive feelings for boys and girls? It doesn't matter. Completely, it doesn't matter. Go in any kind of Walmart, Safeway, sit there for half an hour, what I sometimes do only for fun or not for fun, and see how parents are dealing with their children. Is there a compassionate smile to the child who's crying instead of boys don't cry or girls don't cry or don't be such a wimp. For me, it's if we are not changing something from early, early on in the being, when the being is innocent, organic, this is why conscious child raising is so important in conscious parenting. That is for me the main thing and everything. And, and the other thing is I saw a lot of men in schools and in childcare situations really suffering because it's so paranoid, sorry to say that. When I worked in a preschool, men, they can't have any kind of children anymore on their laps. When they're reading children books to them, that's not allowed. Men is not allowed to change diapers in a preschool or when there is a need. And is not allowed to go in bathrooms with children. So even when a little boy said, can you go with me to the bathroom because I need your help? That's the other side. And the parents are paranoid that something is happening and they're suffering on all sides. The two-year-old maybe wants to sit on the preschool teacher's lap when he's reading a book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he has to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not allowed to touch you, child. Yeah, it's, that is for me the other side, what I only want to emphasize here, because it's such a big, big topic. Thank you for taking that piece. I think it's so important. There's also modeling. I'm a book editor and recently received a manuscript from a psychologist, psychotherapist, and it was about women abusing men. And this is an untalked about subject, and it's more common than people would imagine. This is everything from physical violence to deep shaming men when they're not standing up. I think it's very common, and I think men are deeply wounded from the get-go, but also I think as women, we really have a responsibility if we're talking about how can I make a change? I can't make a change on the global scene. I can only make a change in the way in which I deal with men and boys. So the last thing I want to say is that through our publishing company, I worked for almost three years on this massive volume, and it was called Gender Equity and Reconciliation. And it was through the Gender Equity and Reconciliation group that have been working now for 30 years. And what they do is they bring together men and women. So they'll bring together the nuns in a diocese and the priests. And they'll actually have this kind of conversation where the women are in the inner circle and begin to talk about what they have experienced. And then the priests go into the middle circle and they begin to talk. This is a five-day program. And they're doing it all over the world. They're doing it in South Africa. They're doing it in Brazil, they're doing it in the States. And the stories are unbelievable to hear the stories of young boys who are abused physically. And the work that these people are doing to bring reconciliation, they actually were working with Archbishop Desmond Tutu down in South Africa, the apartheid situations and so on, trying to bring people together to hear these kinds of stories. And it was all about the gender issues. It was men and women, and now it's expanded to be all the different gender considerations. I think what we're really saying is we are born whole and innocent, and then we experience trauma, and it comes from multiple different sources, some more than others. 
and it affects both sexes. <laughs> and the only person we can control is ourselves. So I believe the path forward is learning to accept and love compassionately every part of ourself, the part of ourself that is also an abuser, the part of us that has resorted to abuse to meet some unspoken, probably unconscious perceived need. And there is intergenerational trauma. It is passed down. Epigenetics, there is biology that trauma affects the granddaughter and grandson of the parents. We haven't had access to the healing modalities that we have now ever before. So I think there really is a lot of hope. I think the path to healing is both internal and external, and they work in synchronicity, actually. The more I can heal and have compassion for the parts of myself that I see in another, the more easily I can access compassion for them and have actual honest conversation or relationship with them. But some people are not ready and may never be in this lifetime because it is so very challenging. I have great hope for the future because I do believe that there are some folks who just choose, or I don't know if it's even a choice for them. They cannot at this time access what they need to heal their trauma. There was a point that I wanted to bring up that came from the movie too, towards the end of the movie, where the women decided that there were three things that they needed to ask for. And if they did not get those three things, then they were going to leave. One thing was safety for their children. And the second thing was a respect for their faith. These were the threats that they were feeling in their situation. They felt that their children were being abused and they were at risk. That was also true of their faith. There's a third one, and I can't remember what it was, but the thing that I thought was so interesting was they did not make their own personal safety one of the stipulations that they had to have a response to or else they were going to leave. And they ended up leaving. So they felt that their children could only be protected by them and that they would be the protectors of their own faith. There was a conversation at the end of the film where one of the women asked, we're going to go out into the world and we won't have any elders to tell us what to do. And the answer came back, we will find our own elders. And I think the implication was that they would find their own wisdom. They would live by their own wisdom. You don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know if there's a sequel to that kind of a movie. If anybody who's seen the film can remember the third thing that they required before they left. And then in the last scenes of the movie, you see them moving out. In their covered wagons. <laughs> so I wanted to bring it back to what we're talking about in terms of being on a spiritual path, using the tools that we have. Do we feel that our faith is protected? Is that one of the stipulations that we require? Do we even consider that, that our faith is protected? Because remember, they were told if you don't behave this way by the men, by their elders, then you will not be allowed into the gates of heaven. This was the thing that was held over their heads. So that's one question that I have. I was going to say, if I'm safe, my faith is safe. It's one and the same to me. I am my faith. My faith is me. There's no way to separate it. So but I took that part of the movie as them realizing that safety can only come from them. <laughs> You can't ask another to provide your safety. You have to make yourself safe, and that's the choice they made. Whew. I'm looking this up, E.E. It said their reasons for leaving were to ensure the safety of their children, to be steadfast in their faith, and to have freedom of thought. Oh, to have freedom of thought. They didn't even know how to read or write. That wasn't even on the list to have freedom of thought. Oh my gosh. Well, that seems like an important element on the path to think for ourselves, to verify what we're doing for ourselves, and to speak if something seems amiss, and at least have conversations about things. And in a lot of spiritual communities, 
and there are a lot. There have been issues of abuse of power and authority. And we may not have experience with that, or some of us may have some, but there are lessons to be learned from that. Because you would think in spiritual schools, that would be the last thing that would happen. These are people who are committed to a higher purpose. And yet, the way that we're socialized is in very deep, and it comes out on the path. It seems like everything comes out on the path sooner or later. And so if we have issues with power, dominance, or submission, probably those things are going to come out for us to see, and then how do we work with that? I think those of us who have pursued a spiritual path for most of our lives are very vulnerable to this because we perhaps have recognized the desperate condition of our own minds and how unreliable the world has been and our own choices have been and so on. And we are looking for some degree of certainty. We're looking for some degree of stability. We're looking to someone with wisdom who can guide us. So we are I am already predisposed not to trust my own mind and my own views, but to let that authority begin to dictate to me what's the path, what's the truth. So it's a very long journey to submit to that and then to begin to have the courage to question it because the mind is so unreliable and my views are so unreliable. So I'm ready to give over my own independent thought for a higher purpose, for something that I thought was higher and greater. Can I ask you, do you feel like part of the maturity on the path is to then be able to come back and become your own spiritual authority? Yes, well, that's why it's such a long process. It's really moving into a sense of maturity where the spiritual authority if it was a benevolent one, was pointing you in the direction of what was always your own truth to begin with. And then as you mature, you have the opportunity then to really own who you are and what you are. And then look back and say, boy, was I naive. Did I, you know, did I follow the party line and and no more? So it's definitely a process of maturation. So that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to include this word agency, to have an idea of our own ownership for what we have learned, what we stand for, and what we do not stand for. So I wanted to just bring that word out too. It's not just a cultural consideration. It has to do with how we are, how we are practicing daily on our own spiritual path. And it seems to me, if I have issues with authority, women in authority, or men in authority, however I relate to those things, and I feel like there is really some charge behind it, then that's something for me to examine. To be curious about that. The idea is to be ruthlessly self-honest, but I can't trust my own mind all the time. I make an assumption and draw a conclusion about what's going on and tend to point the finger at someone. But if I've got a chart, there's something for me to look at. Mm-hmm. What I see might be true, but also there's some underlying issue for me that if it's not dealt with, if I don't relate with that, I'm not sure I can go much further on the path mm-hmm. in a particular area anyway. What do you think? Have we said everything that's safe to say? (laughs) I just want to say how much I appreciate the honesty with which you all are speaking, acknowledging the imperfection, the full human experience. We talk about a path. When I talk about my path, I bring all of my humanity with me. And that woman who would have become a murderer had she stayed, Mm -hmm. she lives in me too. Mm-hmm. And I saw them leaving to essentially protect her and protect their faith. And I saw it as the most loving way of saying to a wounded part of myself, you too belong. 
I will protect you. You will not be left alone. You will not be shunned. You too belong. And I think that there is healing for men. I mean, they're only allowed to express anger. (laughs) They're only allowed to express anger. If we can help men bring all the wounded parts of themselves to the light, to the path without shame, I think that we have a brilliant future. I wonder how that can be said without men feeling emasculated. I'd like to hear from the men how they receive what's being said by women here tonight. (laughs) These men have thought it through. Like, (laughs) Say that a man cannot imagine that he has done harm. It would damage his self, his being so much to even acknowledge that he might have done harm and he can't accept it in himself. So he denies it, denies it, denies it, doubles down denying it. It's just unthinkable. He, at this moment, cannot live with the idea that he's done harm. I see it as a protective mechanism. I see a child who learned that when you do something bad, you don't admit it because you're going to get shamed or blamed. Mm -hmm. And when you feel big feelings, the only thing you're allowed to do is get angry, scream, hit. I believe in my heart of hearts that if he could see what he was doing, He would change instantly, but there's a block. He can't see it. As a man, I can never really appreciate the situation that women are in. We use the term as a man and as a woman. I think everybody's different. So these generalizations, they don't work for me. I've been studying the Enneagram lately, and I've been seeing how much some people, they are like their type, quote unquote. I realized a long time ago that just because I'm a white male, that there's cultural assumptions that are bred into me virtually, who knows from how far back. It's almost like a xenophobia that other people are different. And so I can't appreciate walking around as a woman and then noticing how you're being objectified by men and how so many women have objectified themselves because of what men do. Our whole culture commodifies everything and we tend to start commodifying ourselves unbeknownst to ourselves. So I think these kinds of conversations are important because it's beginning to hold up the mirror. But if you don't want to see the mirror, There might be a shock that happens in your life that you can't avoid something any longer. But until then, can women and men really talk to one another? Honestly, can men and women talk to one another and really hear one another? Just listen. So I've just put out questions without any answers, but that might be more useful. I discovered that men and women, we can first. Listen and listen and listen to each other. And I experienced that several times in groups that the men talked with each other first and the women. And then we met and we only talked as a body of women, as a body of men and the other group only listening. I do not have any kind of hope or whatever thought that I can understand anybody, but I can listen and accept this curiosity and it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman and have this open heart and this compassion for each other. So I think this is what I learn more and more. This is going on over there. That's interesting. And this is what is. I wonder sometimes how much goes on outside of myself is a reflection of what's happening inside of myself. So that if I am in a hurtful situation, is it only reflecting the hurt that I am either denying is going on inside of me or that I am perpetuating for myself? So that's something I wonder about. And thinking about men and women being able to talk to each other, 
I think for me, I can talk to people if I know myself or if I can communicate from a clear place. And so I need to be able to recognize when I am communicating from a perceived expectation and to recognize when am I conforming myself because I think this is what someone wants to hear instead of it being a pure communication. There's a couple things going on for me. It's probably been the greatest gift that I've had in my life to have relationship with women, with my wife, with my daughter, with my mom. <laughs> and it's really been eye-opening to me to be in conversation with my daughter, who's in her now late 20s, and have her tell me, she's really pretty open, about her experience with authority in the educational system, in colleges, with heads of departments, males. It's been actually pretty shocking to have a visceral feeling, because she's my daughter, of what it's like to be in a male-dominated system. And it's something that is foreign to many men. But what's been of great value to me is to really kind of get the principle of opening to the feminine, that it's essential on the spiritual path. If anything is going to happen beyond just this crystallized person, I identify with. And in one sense, that we're all feminine in relationship to the divine. The receptivity that's necessary is part of being a human being, male or female. So without that, part of myself is cut off completely. Mm -hmm. And then also how to listen, but also beyond gender, how to just be myself, my own person, how to stand in what's real for me and treat other people with respect, men and women, and relate with all the energies, the feminine energies and the male energies, both essential and conditioned. Being in relationship to those things is part of practice for me. Mexico is a culture which is very definitely dominated by male dictation, by male decisions, to the degree that a tradition amongst women, if, if he doesn't beat me, he doesn't love me. It's a proof of relationship kind of thing. Oof. When you were talking about, you need to talk about it between women, you need to talk about it between men. I found that the talking doesn't go very much anywhere. It's taking a stand in my personal life. And I've seen it around. You just take a stand. You don't have to explain or write a story. It's just, this is where it stops. This is where the tolerance or the complicity, because there's a lot of, I get something from it. You know, there's a lot of complicity going on around that. And like in the art world, I was doing a lot of painting and everything. And then I realized, the, the only way I was going to get ahead in the art world, in galleries, was playing that power game, that sexual power game. And I said, fine, I paint because I want to. I have things to say, but I'm not going to play that game. Mm -hmm. The only way you can have your thought is through being physically safe. A lot of my heroes are not physically safe, but they take their stand and they trust their thoughts and their own concept of what's good and bad and what life is all about. Back to taking that stand. And then Mexico right now is very muchly in that power game. We're talking about authority figures. Some of them are for real, but authority figures are very attractive to fanatics, to power games. So I've had to have a lot of discrimination, not judgment, but discrimination of dealing with a fanatic here or dealing with somebody 
who may appear eccentric and may appear way out and may be, appear dangerous, but to be able to see where there's not a power game. I've seen too many power games in Mexico and I've managed to avoid the physical abuse and so on, but there is a lot of gender abuse. As somebody was saying about how much of me is feminine and how much is masculine. In, in my case, I've had to develop a lot of masculine just to be able to take those stands, just to be able to keep my kids safe, just to be able to do a lot of things. I've had to be able to draw on the masculine because that's the context. And the other thing that's been interesting for me in these terms is gender changes. And I, I'm wondering how that masculine paradigm is so attractive because girls' lives are so threatened. I mean, I believe the soul is androgynous. We're not masculine or feminine. But I see so many kids really gravitating to that choice as though that were going to protect them from whatever dangers there are out there. I can't really talk about what's going on in France, but from listening to everybody tonight, it's more uh, reflecting on, on myself. Does anyone speak French here? No. Arnaud Desjardins has this um, expression, I think, being a victim or um, bourreau, bourreau that's persecutor. Persecutor, yes. Or executioner. So he says that we always go from one role to the other. And that's what I could really feel in myself. That's really what I'm processing now as a person on the path. That's really what I want to reflect on and see how I can change this for myself or just how it works, this uh, going from one role to the other, mm. getting in the position of being abused and why, and then being the abuser. I was just thinking that maybe so many kids these days are involved in gender change because really they're taught that they have to shut down part of themselves, either the masculine or feminine aspect of themselves. And this is what kids are going through these days since all of that is up and has some light shown on it in ways that it wasn't shown on in past generations. Perhaps. I just want to thank everybody for showing up and speaking and listening. That's it. Thanks so much for coming.